The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Lee, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the playwright, novelist and philosopher Michael Frayn, whose new book is called Magic Mobile. Michael, welcome. I mean, I say welcome, obviously, we're stuck at home and this is being conducted over Zoom. How is lockdown treating you? Well, it's keeping me very busy. There's so many people sending messages saying, how are you? Are you surviving the lockdown? And we send out so many messages saying, how are you? Are you surviving the uh, isolation and so forth? I've never been so busy in my life. (laughs) And what new book we're looking at, Magic Mobile, is obviously a pre-lockdown work. Certainly was. (laughs) (laughs) But it's sort of a collection of, I mean... The way it's printed and a lot of the subjects, you know, in these sort of short sketches or squibs, I don't know how you describe them, are, are sort of technology. Is that the thing that, that sort of unites it? I mean, what sort of what is it? What sort of thing is it? It's hard to describe for me. I don't know. It's a collection of uh, sketches, just ideas for sketches came, so I wrote them down. But I agree, it, does, uh, it now seems to refer to a world that no longer exists. All this was finished last year, I should say. Um, we've been waiting for the, the BBC broadcast to go out. They start in May, before the book was published. So it is, um, it's getting a bit historical now. It, so it's a BBC broadcast. It's a series of, I mean, are, are they doing them on the radio or? Yeah, Martin Jarvis does them on the radio. He's recorded um, a great many of my things in the past. And he gets an incredibly distinguished team of actors because you can get very grand actors to come and do one day or two days recording for radio that they wouldn't, that they'd never accept a job like that on television or film because it involves so much time. So you get, we've got a very, very grand cast. And I mean, does it connect at all? Because you, you did a previous collection, I think your previous publication is Matchbox Theatre. Two, 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 Matchbox Theatre and uh, what was the last one called? Pocket Playhouse, yeah. And do you, are they sort of a new form that you've adopted? I mean, what? Well, I think I've rather gone back to youth and childhood. I began my career as a, as a newspaper reporter on The Guardian, and then I started writing a column, funny column for them, and moved to The Observer and wrote a funny column then for years. And I rather think um, life has led me around in a circle many, many, many years later, back to where I started. So it's sort of halfway, halfway between a newspaper column and a, and a play. <laughs> yeah, a play newspaper column uh, affected, I suppose affected, yes, by uh, experience of writing plays. One of the uh, nice things about writing plays, you can also do in, in sketches like this, is that there's no author present. The author can be absent. It's just the characters who speak. When I wrote a column in the newspaper, Columnists were expected to fill the column with their personality, especially they were expected to put your own views in, have its extreme views, odd views, or whimsical views, whatever. And looking back, it looks a bit obstreperous. I'm not sure I very much like that person who um, obtruded so much on the column. Uh, but if you just have characters, they can take over. They do all the work, they do all the speaking, and you can um, sit in the darkness somewhere backstage and not be involved. Do, do you feel the, the sketches kind of have 
I mean, I, technology seems to be part of it. But do you think they have something that that makes them hang together as a collection? <laughs> I don't know. I agree. A lot of them are about technology, not all of them. I think it's because um, I suppose, like all of us, we all have a sort of love-hate relationship to technology. I adore most technological innovations, like this, for instance, this uh, the Zoom app that we're doing this over. Absolutely wonderful. Um, you don't have to go out, you don't have to get a train or a taxi or whatever, you can just sit at home and, and do it. And I can see you, you can see me. Um, and um, I do Zoom-ins with all my children and grandchildren, and it's lovely. Uh, but then, of course, there is the, the downside. That, um, with, all these, with all these devices, you have to remember passwords. Or you have to remember where you put the password to keep it safe. <laughs> I devised such a, a, a secure code for my passwords so that even if I lost my mobile phone, uh, no one would be able to read the code to remind myself of what the password is. But, but I can't remember um, what the code is now myself. So I look at these extremely obscure messages and I can't retrieve what the information was supposed to be to myself. <laughs> what, what's the sort of germ for these pieces? I mean, because I can't sort of imagine you as it were, sit at your desk thinking, right, I'm now going to write a sketch. I mean, maybe you do, but... No, ideas fall into your head. You yeah. suddenly realise that ideas... It uh, might be an idea for a full-length play or a novel or a sequence of 12 novels. Not that I've ever had such an idea, but it could be. Or it might be just for a very short sketch. You never know what's going to turn up. And is the German them often kind of linguistic? Because it feels to me like a lot of these are de deal with a particular kind of language and play on that, you know, the language of the, you know, people soliciting feedback or customer service or whatever, you know. Just... Absolutely. Well, it's lovely uh, to find you've got this uh, language in your mouth, in your, in your fingers on the, on the keyboard, and you're writing like a, a public relations person or, uh, or someone from the gas board demanding payment or whatever it is. I think of you know some of your your early work you know your for like plays and things as proceeding from a sort of intellectual curiosity to start with a lot of these seem to proceed from sort of mild irritation is there a sort of aspect of you know just god why is it like this you know the modern um, yeah i'm not sure it's irritation it's amusement that the um <laughs> the way people do express themselves and the demands that are made by technology you're in a relatively rare minority of people who've worked with equal success in sort of drama, in prose fiction, in, you know, radio sketches and in and journalism, is there sort of one, one part of your output, one medium, one genre in which you feel kind of most at home, most comfortable? No, I don't think so. I think it is just that an idea comes and part of the idea is the medium in which it's going to be told. That, that, that is the idea, how you tell the story. And some stories seem to uh, demand to be told on the page, some in dramatic form. I mean, it seems like the freest life in the world being a writer you can do absolutely whatever you like, write about anything you like. But in fact, it's not quite like that. You're constrained by the ideas you have. And ideas either come or, or they don't come. I'd very much like to be writing uh, a long serious sequence of plays about the problems of the world, but no ideas for that have come. So have the ideas that have come to you, I mean, obviously, 
they've changed over the years. But have you noticed a a trend? I mean, have you sort of found like I, I went through a phase of having ideas for long plays about the world, or I went through a phase of having ideas for novels? I mean, do you think can you see a shape to your career? No, <laughs> there ought to be a shape. I agree, there ought to be a shape. No, I mean the last novel I did was Skios, which was a farce, and it was partly an experiment to see whether you could do farce as a novel, because farce in the theatre depends on having an audience or sitting, sitting together, and they infect each other. And if if you get them laughing for a start, they infect each other with their laughter. Could you do that in a novel? But the novel before that was a rather serious one. I mean Skios. Obviously, you're, you're sort of one of the things for which you're most famous is Noises Off, which is, you know, the great sort of metaphase. Did you find yourself thinking when you were writing Skios of the, you know, that the techniques work the same way in prose or that, you know, I mean, what was your conclusion to that experiment, having done Noises Off and then, then done farce in prose as Skios? I thought it worked. I thought it, it turned out OK as a, as a novel and it was very enjoyable to write. Again, because the characters help. If you get some characters going, they they do help out. They do a lot of the work. They say their own words. They think their own thoughts. They perform their own actions. And I very much enjoyed writing Skills. And now I'm going back in the opposite direction. I've written a screenplay from Skills. I also have a screenplay from Spies, which we're trying to set up. So that's moving it back to an audience. But of course, a cinema audience or a television audience is not like a theatre audience. They're not all packed in together. They are disparate. And uh, often you see films in cinemas with three other people sitting in the, in the cinema. And you, you couldn't do a play like that at all. So are you, are you kind of aware when you're writing for the stage of the effects, effectively? You, know, you can achieve certain things when people are packed together and there's that kind of herd instinct, you know, if you can get a laugh. I think you, you can't really think about anything except the story when you're writing because that does take up all the available neurons and synapses in one's brain. But I think somehow, it, if you're writing a play, it is on kind of two tracks. You're simultaneously thinking about this prince who's living in a castle in Denmark in the Renaissance or whatever, and simultaneously thinking about this actor who is holding a cardboard scar or whatever, moving from one chair on an on a empty stage to, to another chair. And somehow, if it's going to work, you've got to have both those tracks going. Do you think that the technology that's changed, not only the way you know, we communicate as now, but with the way we take in art and the way our kind of well, our day-to-day existence changes. Has that changed the possibilities of what can be done in dramatic art or in fiction? I mean, do you, do you feel like the, the ground is shifting? I'm, not, I'm just struck, for instance, that you, you rewrote Godot in this one for the age of the iPhone, and, you know, it comes to a rather different conclusion than the original. Well, one of the difficult things about writing fast is that fast does depend on technology to some extent, it doesn't depend on making arrangements and so forth, and the technology changes all the time. So uh, a lot of the shorter farces I've written in the past now are out of date. So I think that changes, but I think the, the format does also change. I mean, when I started writing plays, all plays were three-act plays, but all plays, most plays were three-act plays, and that is the traditional form. And now no one puts on three-act three plays. 
uh, my first early plays, the three acts, and they have to be slightly reorganized if they produce now to, to get them into two acts, let's say, with just one interval, because no audience would go up for, for two intervals. And curiously, the famous um, course on uh, screenwriting run by, oh, what's the man called? Anyway, he tells you how to write a screenplay which works in three acts. But three acts is out of the window. It's curious that the cinema is still thinking in terms of three acts, where the three acts originated, we've gone. And indeed, that you know, we're now we're now seeing all this sort of a totally different set of dramatic arcs in long form telly. I mean, is that something yeah. you're interested in? Well, it's a bit uh, beyond my scope, I think, but it's quite true that the television series is now a serious uh, art form, and a lot of the best stuff. Uh, on television is done in the form of a three or four part series or even a 12 part series, which was not true in the past. In the, true, in, in the past, the series like that was frivolous. It was just it was soap opera. But now people do really, really serious stuff that way. That's great special. My son-in-law is Andy Harris, who runs Left Bank Pictures and they made uh, The Queen and they made uh, The Crown. They've just uh, done Quiz. I mean, you saw a quiz. That was uh, that was a three-parter, and it was a, 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 a terrific uh, playwright, James Graham, and did an absolutely wonderful, really serious play, a very dramatic story, but with a lot of uh, philosophical implications in it. Are, are you ever sort of tempted to write for for that sort of screen? If an idea came, I'd, I'd happily write it. I'd love to have a series on television. And of course, it's also changed because now more and more people want to choose when they watch what they want. They don't, be told, don't want to be told by the BBC or ITV when they should look at something on the screen. They want to get hold of it in their own time. So they, they stream, they, they download it. Yeah, it does, does change. I think one of the, the firms that are coming best out of the coronavirus is Netflix because everyone wants to download entertainment. And there's a huge amount of stuff on Netflix, uh, stuff they make themselves, really, really terrific stuff, and also old films and things you can get from them. Do you throw a lot in with the, with the kind of people who say, which there seem to be a lot of them, who say that now actually long-form television is the sort of dominant artistic form of the age and things like novels and the theatre sort of essentially take a back seat to that and are no longer relevant in, or important in the way that they were? It's the interesting thing that I've spent my career in different, writing in different forms, uh, journalism and novels and plays and so forth. Each form that I've been involved with has been on its deathbed. I've sat at the deathbed of uh, newspapers, the deathbed of uh, plays, the deathbed of uh, cinema films. And each somehow is just about gasping for air and keeping going. And I think the truth is, particular technologies, particular techniques of telling stories are not usually replaced, they're supplemented. And even though television is, has vastly larger audiences than uh, novels do, people still go on writing novels, and they go on buying novels and reading novels. It's curious, I mean, life gets more complicated. There was a time when there were just novels and plays and then people invented uh, cinema, and then they invented television. And all these things were supposed to kill off the early forms. I don't think they do. I think they tend to supplement them. 
And sort of draw on them to an extent as well, didn't they? They draw on each other. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, traditionally, films overwhelmingly were made from properties that people could buy. Producers wanted something they could actually hold in their hands and say, OK, well, I'm paying a million dollars for this or whatever. And uh, I want something solid I can see. I've got my hands on it. And so they tended to buy novels and successful plays. That's one of the things about Netflix is that they commission a lot of their own material. And apparently they give uh, producers and directors a very free hand. If they trust the director and producer, they say, here's the money, get on and make it. And they don't sit looking over the, uh, their shoulders as traditional film producers do, saying, oh, you know, that's, you know, you've got to have a happier ending or you've got to make the characters more attractive. So that's, um, that is changing, yeah. You mentioned that Spies is being, is being made. That's a feature film, is it? That's what we're hoping to set up. Yeah. It might, might be Netflix. But you're, are you writing the screenplay for that, did you say? I have written the screenplay. I've you written have written that? 18 drafts of the screenplay. Now. 18. Is it, is it harder or easier to adapt your own material? I think it's probably easier because you've got the characters in your head and you've got the outlines of the story in your head. It's quite interesting to think of other ways of telling the same story with the same characters. And you find that the characters do come with you. They're prepared to, to suffer quite a lot of, uh, of changes to their environment and, and try other ways of telling the story for you. I mean, my memory of that novel, which I haven't read for a few years, is that it has a lot of, I mean, a lot of what makes it work, of the sort of narrative feints and, you know, are to do with voice and are to do with, dramatic irony and the idea, you know, the kids think something's going on and something else is going on that the reader knows about. How does that translate to film? You're absolutely right. And that is the problem of adapting it. In the novel, uh, the story is seen through the eyes of two small boys who are looking at the adult world and seeing it in terms of the, the children's stories that they're familiar with and interpreting, misinterpreting everything in front of their eyes. And we, as... Uh, readers, grown-up readers, who have a more sophisticated take on the world, and we can see they're getting it wrong. Well, I don't think, and I've discussed this back and forth, it's being directed by my daughter, the uh, Rebecca Frame, and we've discussed this back and forth, and I don't think you can do the film like that. It's just too limiting. So I've had to think what is the story the real story that the boys are looking at and misunderstanding. We've got to keep running in parallel with boys' interpretation of it and the actual, the actual story as the adults that they're looking at are experiencing it. And that is that's very different. It involves a lot of extra work. There's a line in Magic Mobile that I was... It's, it's one of the later sketches. It begins with saying, you know, what do you feel about quantum entanglement? And the interlocutor says, well, 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 I think... And they say, no, 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 what do you feel? I mean, do you see the as having been a kind of... felt to me like that might be a little marker on, you know, there's been a bit of a sea change in the culture, you know, pathos is taking over from logos. Do you, do you feel that something deeply, or is that a... Well, it's... Uh, what happens in interviews and things like people don't say, what do you think about things? They say, what do you feel about things? And uh, obviously, a lot of things you can have, can have feelings and should have feelings about. Uh, but also a lot of things, it seems slightly ridiculous to be asked to have feelings about, that you do want to ask what you think about them, what you, what you know about them, like quantum entanglement. It's no good 
approving of quantum entanglement or disapproving of it, seeing what the abandonment have done away with. But you need to actually think about it and think how it works. Yeah. Do you think you'll you'll write another novel or do another full length play? I mean, do you have that? Do those ideas come still? I think I'm too old now. They, they haven't come some years, which is why I haven't written one. If one does come, certainly I'll be absolutely in there, fingers on the, on the keyboard. But I am 86 now, and it's getting a bit old to write, to write books and plays, I think. Mary Wesley plugged on, didn't she? Yeah, how, how, what's, what age did she go on? I don't know, I think she, I think she went on into her 90s, but I mean, she only started when she was sort of 75 oh. or something, so she had some catching up to do. That's the secret, I've used it all up when I was a, when I was a young man. Are there sort of younger playwrights or novelists who you think are, you know, who you sort of look to with a sort of, like, they're where it's at at the moment? Yes, I mean, there's some absolutely amazing writers, uh, particularly astonishing playwrights out there, like James Graham, I was talking about before, who wrote Quiz, and uh, Lucy Preble, for instance. I mean, they're really uh, amazing writers. I couldn't begin to compete. And when you say, say you're sort of, you know, you've got a lot of work on, you're busy in lockdown, I mean, are you, are you doing more of these sketches? What are, you, what are you working on now? No, I've been working on the screenplays of... Uh, most recently, of spies, I've done the screenplay of Skios, and we're just waiting to see whether we've got a producer and director who's going to take that up. But spies, I've been—I hope I've now got a reasonably final version of, but have been working on it um, until recently. Yeah. Was it was it like turning Skios, as it were, something that that was a sort of dramatic, theatrical prospect that you did in prose as an experiment? Turn it back into theatre, if, if you like. <laughs> Turn it back into film. It's enjoyable. But you do, as I say, you do have to um, think about it. But you, you, have the, you have the same characters. The characters are fairly constant. And you feel you know the characters and you know what the outlines of the story are. As I said, the, the characters do tend to be quite tolerant and to come along with you and be prepared to tell their story in a different way. But are the, are the beats different? I mean, do you find that the laughs are coming in different places or the, the techniques for you know, producing surprise or whatever you might call it, a farcical mechanism are different. Yeah, of course. And, uh, and you can't help inventing new things all the time. You think of new scenes and uh, new possibilities and the characters start saying things they, they hadn't said before. Yeah. Finally, Magic Mobile ends with a conversation between the author of, I guess, Magic Mobile and presumably his wife. Is, is that a sort of I mean, I was like, is that Claire? You know, your wife, Claire Tomlin, the biographer. Do, do you sort of show her your thing and say, I've, I've got my book finished? I think the final sketch is really about two of the readers of the book. Oh, they're readers. Have I mis yeah. misconstrued it? <laughs> you know, two of the readers are complaining that they've been unfairly satirised in the book. That's very metafictional. Well, I think that will do. Michael, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode.
Try four weeks of The Spectator absolutely free. And, for this month only, you'll receive a Spectator wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger.com 